listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Love that song. Love praising God in Christmas because it reminds us of that awaiting of a Savior that we celebrate in Christmas. In fact, this series we've said is the wait is over because we're reminding ourselves that Christmas is not all about all the Black Friday sales, about all the shopping, about all the expectation of food, although there's great food. I'm Puerto Rican and the best food in Puerto Rico usually served around Christmas. I have two more Puerto Ricans today in the house. Give it up for them. It's Johnny and Merati. Sorry. Sorry. We, I, I, I know it looks like we're recruiting Puerto Ricans here, but there's a bunch of us here for some reason. For some reason, God has a purpose. Hey, this is a, a, a body of the nations, man. Uh, but yeah, so expectation of food, of, of gifts, and all these great things that are really cultural. Cultural. They're cultural in the sense that we've learned them as part of an American Christ, Christmas tradition. Uh, if you go outside of the U.S. or of countries that are influenced by the U.S., the traditions might be very different. But we have some very American cultural expectations. Now, we need to remind ourselves, we need to re- redeem the meaning of, of, of Christmas in our lives so that we remember that it's all about the expectation that humanity had for a savior, a redeemer, someone who would make all things new, who would come to rule as a messianic king. Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the word Messiah. Why is Jesus called the Messiah and why was he expected uh, to come? Last week, Dr. Mark walked us through Acts 13 where we see how the apostles connect the Old Testament to the New Testament by showing that all of the Old Testament was really about pointing to the Savior, Jesus. It was all about showing them that we were expecting a Savior and that the Savior had actually arrived, that the wait was over. And it was, it was great because in that exposition, Multiple passages from the Old Testament are used to prove that point. So Mark set the, the tone in that sense for what we're going to do now. Now we're going to go back to the Old Testament in these next weeks before Christmas and see what that waiting was like, scripturally speaking. And think about also the emotions that these people were going through as they're waiting for Years and years, they're not just waiting for themselves, for that Savior. Their parents were waiting for that Savior, for that King, for that Messiah. And their parents' parents. So this is a generational weight that they have of, of just wanting that to come true, to be free from oppression, to be free, even though they might have not fully understood this, to be free of sin. They were expecting someone who would come and rule politically, the next president of the United States or the next uh, ruler in Taiwan or the next ruler. It was much more than that. This was a sovereignty and a dominion that went beyond the political stratosphere. It definitely includes that, but it's much more than that. This is the dominion and the kingdom of our hearts. We want Jesus to be the king of our hearts so that he frees us, so that he rules in our lives and we can live in worship and in awe uh, for the rest of our days. And 
Today, specifically, we're looking at Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms, man, I wish we had more time to go into how wonderful the book of Psalms is and all the different little nuggets that it has. Today, we're just going to focus on a few Psalms, and still, I think we're going to do pretty much a little bit of reading today, but that's good. The Psalms are usually attributed to David, but there's multiple authors. 73 of the Psalms were written by David, and 50 were anonymous. And then there's some other authors. But here's the thing, of those 50 anonymous Psalms, some of them are attributed to David. They're not entirely sure, but it's expected that it was written by David because the, prep- the, excuse me, the preposition of, to, and for in Hebrew kind of are indistinguishable. So you can't say if, if it's a psalm of David or to David. So it's a little hard, but most of the authorship of the psalms is attributed to David. This is important because when we look at the book of Psalms as a whole, sometimes we forget that there is an overarching theme over the book of Psalms. They seem like a lot of loose songs and poems that are in there. Some of them are about Jesus. Some of them are not about Jesus. But what we see is that actually when the compilation of all these poems and songs was put together into the book of Psalms, there was a very intentional and awesome structure to it. For example, you may notice when you're reading in your Bible the book of Psalms, you may notice that at the beginning of some of these Psalms, there is a book mention. And it's because there's five books inside of Psalms. There's book one, two, three, four, five. And these books all are forming a compilation of five because that's alluding to something called the Torah or the Pentateuch. This is the first five books of the Old Testament. The Psalms, when they were finally compiled after the exile to Babylon, after that they were compiled together and put together in this neat structure, and what they were meant to be is a new Torah. A new Torah. Now the Torah really, in, for us to understand what the heck that word means, the Torah really was meant to be teaching or law. It's because throughout most of it, Aside from seeing the history of God's people, we see the establishment of a covenant, of a relationship, uh, a pact between the people of God and God through his law that he gives to them. They're supposed to obey it. So the book of Psalms, in a sense, is a prayer book. And this prayer book is for the people of God to strive. That means pray to strive to be faithful to the Torah to be faithful to the laws, but also the part that we're focusing on today, the awaiting of a messianic kingdom, the awaiting of a king, the awaiting of a savior, the awaiting of of the anointed one. That's, in a nutshell, again, very briefly, what the overarching theme of the book of Psalms is. So I wish we had more time to go into it, but yes, there's five books in the book of Psalms, and they're basically showing you that the book of Psalms is meant to be a new Torah. This pattern of five repeats itself. The last five Psalms in the book of Psalms are all about hallelujah. If you notice, they're all about telling God's people to worship God. So for some reason, if you notice, go back to Psalms 146, 7 up to 150. You're going to notice those last five Psalms, those very specifically, are all about proclaiming hallelujah and praising God. So this theme of five was very intentional when this was compiled. But 
our focus, again, is to see in the book of Psalms one of the two main themes, which was the awaiting of a Savior. See, the truth is, the Old Testament, in general, not just Psalms, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Something that we would like to uh, incentivate here is that many of you would walk away after this Christmas season and maybe as a New Year's resolution, tell yourself, I want to read the Bible. I want to read it from start to finish. I don't say that in a legalistic sense. I don't say you have to read it. It's more like I want us to have this yearn that comes up naturally as a result for our love for God. Uh, This yearn that says, I want to know Jesus. And if I read the New Testament, I get, yes, some, the, 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 probably some of the most direct gems, but there's also a lot of indirect gems that we can go back. And you won't know Jesus fully if you're not reading the whole Word of God. So we want to go back with new eyes, with enlarged eyes of the heart to the Old Testament so that we can see, wow, this is Jesus. This is pointing to the need of Jesus. This is pointing to what Jesus is going to do. This is pointing to who Jesus will be in my life. That He will make all things new. That He will be a messianic king. That He will free us from our sins and from our slavery to sins. That's what we want to go to see in the Old Testament. We want to value all of God's Word. Amen. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus tells us, He reminds us that really all of Scripture is about Him. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. And we've mentioned this passage here before. Who did, he re- who did he say this to? The Pharisees, the experts of the Bible. And they missed it. They missed that when you read the Old Testament, when you read Genesis, when you read all these books, you're looking for Jesus. If we read for the sake of reading, that's what happens. But if we read to find Jesus, it's no longer a legalistic list that I have to keep. It's no longer I have to follow my reading plan. It's no longer, oh, when am I going to finish reading? No, I want to meet Jesus today. Let me go to the book of Psalms and see how Jesus is everywhere in Psalms. Let me see the, the, the beauty of the personhood of Jesus in my life and in the life of a people yearning for salvation, yearning for redemption, yearning for a true king. We always look for kings, but he is the true king. See, In Psalms, we find a yearn for a Messiah. The Messiah was the anointed one, the great king and savior in the line of David that the Old Testament had promised. That's why we're going back to the Old Testament. We're seeing that over and over again, there's this expectation for someone that is referred to as the Messiah. So let's, let's get this terminology out of the way because Messiah can sound like a churchy word and it can sound like a very weird, complex word, but here's what it is. Messiah and Christ, right? We've said Jesus Christ. We've read Jesus Christ. The term Messiah and Christ both mean anointed. Usually, anointed means by God. In the New Testament and in early Judaism, Messiah is a summary term. It basically gathers all up the different uh, passages and uh, uh, the uh, references to this anointed one. 
It's all of the Old Testament expectations about a coming anointed one who would lead and teach and save God's people. And this anointed one is especially the great king and savior in the line of David. Whew, that's a a lot. Long story short. We are expecting a king and a savior in the line of David who was one of the first kings of Israel. He's the second king after Saul. David, at some point in history in the Bible, is promised that from him would come someone who would be heir to the throne, but would establish a throne that is forever, God's throne forever. So this is, a, a, you can say, a monarchy, a king that is much higher than man-made kings. This isn't David the king. This isn't Solomon his son. These aren't human kings, although Jesus is human, but he's also God. So what we're expecting is a God king. A God king in the form of a servant, in the form of man. A God king. Now this God king, this anointed one, is in the line of David because his human His human heritage comes from David, but his godly heritage is from the Father, Yahweh. Now, in Psalm 132, we can see part of this promise that is made to David of this expectation of someone that is from his offspring. That means someone coming from David to be the king, the anointed one, and establish a kingdom forever. That's where the expectation starts. Psalm 132, we will be reading verses 11 to 18. Psalm 132, verses 11 through 18. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. There it is. He swore an oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now this is referring specifically to Solomon, his, the first king after David, his son, and the other sons of David that come along. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. That's us. There I will make, here it is, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his his crown will shine. This is particularly very visual vocabulary when he says a horn to sprout for David. This is an ox's or a bull's horn. And this horn in that culture and in that time represented victory. So this is what we're waiting for. The king that's going to come and take over. This king is going to establish a kingdom and we will rejoice and say hallelujah because God's kingdom is established forever you got to understand, after all these sons of David came, then comes the exile. So things aren't looking that great 
when they compile all the poems together. They had already been written, but they put all these psalms together in that order because people are looking forward for that messianic kingdom to come. They're frustrated. They're in exile. The kingdom of Israel was defeated, was crushed. They're in exile under the dominion of other nations. So we see here that horn to sprout for David is Jesus. This is what we will eventually find in Luke. In the book of Luke, we will see a passage where this prophecy is fulfilled. But let's move on to another psalm. Our goal today is to see Jesus in all of the psalms that we read and see the expectation for that arrival. That expectation for that arrival. So we'll look now at Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. In this psalm, we read the following The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it, the apostles quote it. And it's referring specifically to God, the Father speaking to God. Jesus saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Does anyone know what a footstool is? So that's how easy, that's how cake it is for Jesus to have dominion. Uh, All my enemies, I just put my leg up on you. It's a footstool. And this, it's important that we see that this is, in fact, a divine God, a divine, a divine king that this is referring to. Because someone could be made to think that this is someone along the line of David that's just a regular man. But when we read here, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. This is a Lord speaking to a Lord. And this is a very specific Lord word in Hebrew. So when you read this, this is communication from God the Father to God Jesus, God the Son. It's saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that means equality, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that is a mouthful. Melchizedek. (laughs) Melchizedek actually doesn't show up a lot in the Bible. He shows up in one scene of the Bible and everywhere else he's referenced to. And so Melchizedek shows up. He's the king of Salem and the priest of God the Most High. And he meets up with Abraham after Abraham returns from a slaughter of kings And here's what happens. Abraham blesses him. And to Abraham, he sees him as someone that's worthy of extolling him. Not worshiping him necessarily, but of of giving homage to him. And so he decides to give a tenth part, a tithe of everything that he received to this person, Melchizedek. Again, a king and a priest. And that's important. The funny part is, not just is this a king and a priest, his very name is translated king of righteousness. Okay, So when we see here that this anointed one in the previous psalm 
is referred to as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You can think of it as a priest whose very name is king of righteousness. Both a king and a priest. Both a king and a priest. Having neither beginning uh, days or end of life is Melchizedek. When you hear people talk about Melchizedek who are like Bible geeks, they mention this guy who like lived forever. And it's not that he lived forever. Melchizedek, after he meets up with Abraham, he just walks his own way and is never talked of again. But he was a priest. And so a lot of people saw the name of Melchizedek as representative of a priesthood that started never and ended never. It's always been. It is an eternal priesthood. So when we see the psalmist say that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, this is an eternal priesthood, and this is an eternal priest king. He is both a priest and a king. Now, to do this, you have to be a pretty darn priest as well, because you have to be able to account for the sins of all. Let's move on to Psalm 2. Another psalm that is referred to as a messianic psalm. Psalm chapter 2. This psalm, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 12, is also looking forward to the anointed one and is also a psalm that is quoted often in the New Testament. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12, reads the following. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed one, the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us to be free of Israel's people, basically. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. So this is the language again referring to the Son of David, not any of the previous sons, but Jesus, the Son of of God. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, let's understand here that we're talking about nations that are being conquered by the King. And when Jesus comes along, people are expecting this type of conquest to occur, but the type of conquest that occurs over the nations that are not Israel is of the heart. It's a conquest of the heart. Gentiles, which were non-Jews, now become part of the kingdom of heaven. Now they are part of Israel. They are the new Israel. So this is what this is referring to. It's a conquest. Yes, He is taking over. You shall break the nations. You will, it says, ask of Me, the Father says to Jesus, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. When Jesus 
leaves the apostles, right before he leaves the apostles, he says to them a few days earlier, he says, go therefore and baptize, uh, preaching and making disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he sends them to the nations. That's this conquest that we see here. We see a conquest that goes beyond the people of Israel and into the world to reach to all the other nations. So what we've seen now in these Psalms is an awaiting of this anointed one. That's been the first part of this exposition is to understand that in the Psalms there's this, there's this yearn, there's this wait for this messianic king to come, an anointed one, a divine one, a son of David, but much more than a son of David, a son of God. And we finally find the wait over, the wait is over in Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. So now we can say the wait is over. Mark read this last week in Acts chapter 13. Specifically, the quote was from Psalm 2. And it was the same one. You are my son today. I have begotten you. So let's read that briefly. Acts 13 verses 32 through 33. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, those promises we read about in the Psalms, what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. This is the confirmation that in fact, all those Psalms and all those quotes from the Old Testament that deal with expectation of the Anointed One were satisfied in Jesus. And he does it by pointing at Psalm number 2. So we've been waiting for this, God, this, this king, this king also anointed one, this divine king, for all this time to redeem us from ourselves, to redeem us from our sins. And now the wait is over because we've received the Son Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. And it's really trippy because Jesus is the Son of man, yet the Son of God. And you're going to find also in the New Testament, there's these quotes that call Jesus the Son, of, the Son of Man. And this is actually a divine title to Him because it's quoting, yet again, another passage in the Old Testament. So when you think about these things, what you see over and over again, the shocking revelation that Jesus is making when He arrives is that He is, yes, the Anointed One, and He is very much God. God has begotten Him today because He is now the heir of all the things that, Je that God will pass on to Jesus. The kingdom, the reign over the earth through the redemption of our sins. Now, when we think about these passages coming up in the New Testament, last week in our lighting of the candle, we read a portion from Luke chapter 1. And Luke chapter 1 had this prophecy that is announced from Gabriel to um, Mary, telling her that she's going to have the Son of God, Emmanuel, Jesus, who is to come to redeem us. But there's another portion after that. There's another prophecy that comes after that. And that prophecy is the one that Zechariah receives. And Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. 
John is a prophet that's going to come to announce the kingdom of heaven and the arrival of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus. So John is the voice that goes forth and tells people, Jesus is coming, repent and believe. It is time to accept Jesus as our Savior. And in this prophecy that Zechariah receives that he is going to have John the Baptist as his son, something is revealed to him yet again about this Jesus. So what I want us to do now to conclude is to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 75. And this one might not be on the screen. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 75. Here we see how Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, recognizes that the wait is over. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by mouth, of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the, land, the hand, excuse me, of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." So here we see Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, telling us the prophecy, yes, has been fulfilled. He quotes a passage from the Old Testament very indirectly by saying, raised up a horn of salvation. A very lazy quotation. It's not a literal quotation. But he's referring to what we saw earlier. That in the psalm it was mentioned that we would get from David a horn of salvation. So when you think about the Bible now with fresh eyes, go to the Psalms and read and search for Jesus, the mention of Jesus, the awaiting of Jesus, and then go to the New Testament and see when the arrival finally happens, how now we've received that redemption, but we are still waiting. Advent and Christmas is not just about celebrating the arrival of Jesus, but also about looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. He is coming back again. Part of what we do when we read these Psalms is to be able to just identify with the yearn and the wait that they have because we have a yearn and a wait. We have a yearn and a wait for Jesus to return. We're not satisfied with the way things are. Kings rule and they rule incorrectly. People abuse their power. Sin is everywhere. And we await for something to redeem us of all of that. And the only way that can happen is finally when Jesus returns and He frees us, not just from the dominions of man, from the, but also frees us from our sins. And when He does that, He ushers in a new kingdom. A kingdom that we've, that we've already started to usher in from the moment that we pray, may His kingdom come. May your will be done. We are ushering that kingdom into the lives of the people around us as a body of believers. And now we wait the climax of that kingdom coming, which is when Jesus returns. So Advent is not just about celebrating the fact that He came, but also we look forward to His future coming. We want Him to come 
so that we may be able to celebrate finally the final horn of salvation, the final victory over everything that we yet await to redeem. So as we close now and we think about these things, remind yourselves once again that Christmas, the season of Christmas, is not just about waiting for nice food and nice parties and nice get-togethers, although those things are nice, but also about remembering that there was an awaiting in the book of Psalms for that Messiah, the Anointed One of David, to come. And that now we look forward, we look forward to the return of Jesus when He comes a second time and finishes and establishes His kingdom forever and dominion forever and redemption of everything. As I close in prayer, we'll also prepare our hearts for communion. We'll be doing communion together as a body of believers. And this is a great opportunity for you to practice uh, this fellowship activity because what we're doing in communion is celebrating what Jesus came to do when he was up on the cross and died for us. And he established, we talked about covenant, he established a new covenant with this. And so we drink the wine or the juice in this case to celebrate the spilling of his blood for the new covenant that was established and we, drink, we eat the bread to celebrate the breaking of his body. It sounds morbid. We're not celebrating, but we're celebrating what it accomplished. <laughs> and so we'll prepare our hearts during this prayer, and afterwards we'll also have tithe and offerings. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, give us new eyes to go and search for you in the book of Psalms and throughout the Old Testament that we would see those footsteps towards your kingdom, the awaiting of a Messiah to arrive, a Messiah that is both king and priest, that is king and savior, a Messiah that comes to free us from ourselves and from the rule of the world, from the evil in the world, from all the things that happen that we just don't understand. We ask that you at this moment keep us in tune with you as we prepare our hearts for communion. We want to celebrate the new covenant that you established, the better hope that we have in you. As we come into intimacy with you at this moment, we ask that you reveal to us any things that we need to work out in our lives. As part of communion, it is a healthy opportunity for us to look inward and see what it is that we need to do to better align ourselves with you, Lord with our lining our walk with you. So bring this to our minds at this moment and to our hearts. And as we celebrate in communion together, may we celebrate the new covenant, the better hope, the redemption of us from our sins. Take our tithes and our offerings, multiply them, use them to expand your kingdom, to touch all the corners of the city of Redlands, beyond Redlands, Riverside, the Inland Empire, San Bernardino, and the world. May people come to know you through the tithes and offerings. May your kingdom expand and may people be blessed. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. 
For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.